Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO, editor in chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined, as always, by Andy Keats, the assistant editor. Hello, Andy. Scott, how are we? Very well, thank you. Managing editor Sarah Libby. Hello, Sarah. Hello. We have a fun show today. We're going to talk about the history of voting by mail in San Diego and how Republicans have long dominated it, used it extensively. But now they say it is fraught with potential fraud. What could have changed in the meantime? We have a deep dive in how the city ended up leasing a giant lemon. More on how and why the city got involved in 101 Ash Street, that high rise, and what we still want to know. Plus, we're suing a few agencies. Just wanted to mention that. But first, the San Diego Union Tribune's endorsement policy has always been driven me nuts it's like when you're you're like you're like cleaning the bathroom and there's just like a spot you gotta you gotta get or it's you can't leave it alone like that's kind of this thing this there's just this little bit of irrationality that i've struggled with for years let me just set it up this way so uh several years ago duncan hunter jr uh was mad at the ut because they they uncovered his corruption and he uh, he said, well, I'm not talking to you. You endorsed and you did this because you endorsed Hillary Clinton. And the reporter said, I didn't endorse anyone. And the UT's edit- editorial page said, you, that's just awful. You know, it wasn't the reporter who endorsed. It was the editorial board. And since then, I've been having a, a long term argument with Matt Hall, who runs the editorial page uh, of the Union Tribune about that, because uh, there's this just disconnect of like did the does the ut actually endorse or does the does just a small group within the ut not representative of anyone except that small group actually endorse this came up with isa or with hunter's potential uh successor daryl isa he said he wouldn't talk to a ut reporter because they endorsed other candidates in the race but of course the reporter said no 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 i didn't endorse anybody but then this week there was a story that came out uh, that these endorsements have become the subject of uh, arguments in can- in campaigns, ballot statements, claiming from some candidates that the Union Tribune endorsed them, but their opponents say, no, that's not true. They only endorsed you for the one race. And then, adding to the confusion... The UT's story about these, quote, falsities came out and said that the Union Tribune, that the newspaper did endorse these candidates, but only for those elections. What is going on here? It's like the climax of this particular confusion. Uh, I just it's I, I'm just swimming in it. Uh, it's 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 just it's hilarity to me. So one thing that I think is weird about this whole mess or I guess a way they could have done things differently is obviously newspapers have been endorsing candidates, their editorial boards, excuse me, have been endorsing candidates for decades, right? It is a thing that editorial boards do and 
part of the reason you might argue why they exist. Um, but instead of like arguing for their own viability and importance and like being able to articulate to people why this tension and confusion is is worth it and why it you know like it's justified because these endorsements are so important and so powerful that it justifies all the confusion that it can also cause for the reporters they instead have just chosen to gone with like well, the public's kind of dumb and they don't understand the difference and that's not our yes. fault. Yeah, a news that it's a news literacy problem that we yes. we have a literacy challenge. Like you could take this as an opportunity to explain why you think it is so important and powerful that you endorse candidates and that you operate in this way that kind of makes reporters lives a little harder, but they haven't done that. There was also a new disti- a new to me, distinction here, yes, um, which was that even in the cases when they endorse, and even when it's appropriate to refer to them as endorsers, it would be inappropriate to refer refer even to the specific editorial board who makes that endorsement as supporters. That <laughs> in- endorsers and supporters are are different classes of uh, groups or individuals, um, and that they belong to one but not the other in the cases that they make an endorsement. Do I have that That's right? That's it. That is news to me as a journalist who has always followed and been heavily involved in opinion journalism. Like I understand why outsiders have a hard time distinguishing between reporters and the editorial board. I get that. But that we're all supposed to distinguish between support in this one particular race and just support in general. Like that's kind of a new one to me. Yeah. So this, this came up because uh, Mara Elliott, who's running for city attorney, obviously reelecting Mara Elliott as her stand. Corey Briggs, who's running up against her has now filed an action saying that, no, 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 you claim that you got the endorsement of the UT you're lying about that because that was only for the primary, not for now. And the UT says, yeah, that's correct. That is a false statement. But in the UT's endorsement of her in March, they said, we endorse her reelection. Like they, and so I don't think it's Mara Elliott's fault to read that and say, okay, they support my reelection because that's what they said. They did. Right. And and then when and she so, was running against the same person, she's running against now. Yeah, yeah. yeah now we so, so, so it, we endorse, but do not support. And by we, <laughs> I mean the editorial board, not the paper. Her re-election, insofar as it exists at this stage of the decision-making process between her and another candidate. But by no means shall that be read to say anything about the next stage in the decision-making process of that re-election. Right. Is yeah. is the so is I, the very obvious implication of that sentence. Yes. <laughs> but, and, and, and to my point, like all these candidates could sue the candidates who did get endorsed because they all those endorsements say the Union Tribune endorsed them. But remember, the Union Tribune didn't endorse them. They could always come back and say it was actually that endorsed. Here's my thing. If you want to endorse, fine. As Sarah says, there is a value to it. The vetting process is actually quite entertaining and, and, and educational. I follow it a lot. Uh, but, it, but if you want to endorse and you want to say that the paper endorsed and carry with it all those things, 
that's fine. Just make sure that you just have to deal with the consequence of what that means for your reporters out there in the community. But you can't spare them the consequence of that by just acting like uh, it's a it's a distinction that we just have to do a better job explaining. I think you just need to own it. Like it is the paper. It's not a separate thing. Yeah. And if you can't own it, if you can't be proud of it, and if the if the paper is going to distance itself from them, then you shouldn't do it. You should. You got to pick a side. And I think you know that that's what's getting them in in this in this weird situation. So there is a fact written in the paper in a news story that these are the endorsements of the actual paper itself. And that has gone uncorrected now for four days. So I guess that's the way it is. And so if Isa or Hunter or anyone wants to make the point, they can just point to the UT and say that's where it is that they say that that happened. There's a there's a separate thing here or related thing here, which is that obviously there was some sort of confusion by the by simple virtue of three separate candidates made the same decision about what could be written in their ballot statement. These are they're both Mara Elliott's a Democrat, Noli Zosa and Joe Leventhal are Republicans. Uh, they, I believe, have three completely separate political consultants. No, I take that back. Noli and Joe Leventhal share a political consultant. Um, but so two separate political consultants, three separate candidates, all were under the impression that it was OK to refer to their endorsement in the general as well. Um, so clearly something was miscommunicated on the paper's end, I think. Yeah. And if you want to back away from Mara Elliott, uh, your endorsement of her of her reelection, that would be an interesting column to read. Yeah. And probably right. something if you're going to say you're and, done with that, you should put out. And I do think Definitely. that that is part of what's going on here is that the recent events have changed the the, ve- the valence of that Elliott endorsement. They have. Yeah. I mean, they have, I think, on occasion, as they pointed out, um, changed their endorsement between the primary and the general. But I think the flip side of that is that very often they don't. And so there's nothing to suggest. I don't think that they're going to flip their endorsements in all three of these situations, in which case some of those candidates will be right (laughs) that they will be endorsed by (laughs) the UT. Yeah. Well, as as journalism continues to work on its 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 issues with transparency and trust, uh, you know, this is just one area that the legacy papers need to deal with. We have our own issues, of course, and people point those out plenty of times. Uh, but this one has been a particularly fun one for me over the years. Let's talk about this. So obviously this week, the trouble at the United States Postal Service and the president's own admission uh, that he does not want to fund it because he does not want to make universal mail-in voting uh, possible is uh, is causing quite a few waves across the country's political discussion. Our own Tony Kravark, who's the chairman of the San Diego County Republican Party for just a few more months, actually, warned on his own Twitter account that mail ballot voting is, quote, fraught with danger. And then he sent a similarly worded press release last week but as you found, Andy Kravark himself voted in in by the mail 22 consecutive elections dating back to 2004. He's not shy about this. He he says it's just his way, and uh, he does a good job of following it up, making sure that the ballot went in. Now, 
this this we wanted to explore this because mail voting in particular in San Diego County has been something that Republicans starting with Pete Wilson many years ago uh, Mayor Pete Wilson went on to become governor ran for president they have innovated they have owned it they have dominated it and um and so this this national uh, cast of aspersions on veil on mail voting has uh, really caught us kind of off guard as like, you know, obviously what's going on is a broader uh, effort to install distrust in the system. But Andy, what did you find about the history here with the Republican Party, how well they managed uh, uh, vote by mail and, and what's going on now? So the history goes back, as you said, Pete Wilson, when he was the mayor of San Diego, he the, the city of San Diego made a decision in 1981 when there was a, a referendum um, over the city council's decision to build and operate the convention center. That was sent to a referendum, so there needed to be a special election. And the city council at that point, or the city of San Diego at that point, held what was then the largest all-male vote in the history of the United States. Um, and so all voters in that election voted by mail, Um it was, at that point, the largest turnout for an election in the city of San Diego's history, and it was conducted at half the price of a that the registrar anticipated a special a regular special election would have would have cost. Um, and uh, Michael Vu, the registrar of voters, told me that the the state of Oregon officials actually came and monitored the election uh, and informed their decision to become one of the states that today does elections entirely by mail. Um, so the city of San Diego was very much a leader in vote by mail uh, under Republican leadership going back to the early 1980s. In the years after that, um, the state of California has always had what is ha has had since I think 1978 what's called uh, no excuse absentee voting, um, which sort of renders the term absentee voting obsolete. Um, because absentee voting is supposed to refer to when you can vote by mail because you have some sort of reason that you can't go vote in person. Um, you're a college kid, for instance, and you're you know you're in Ohio when the election's going to take place, but you're not an Ohio resident, so you vote by mail. Um, military. Yeah, military. Yeah. Exactly. Um, no excuse absentee voting. It means. You can, if you just want to do it, you can do it. You don't need any reason. Uh, you just sign up and you get a mail ballot sent to your your house. So that has been in place in California uh, for decades. And during that time, the Republican Party and Republican consultants, Republican candidates were more aggressive initially in recognizing the opportunity that that represented uh, in appealing to voters at the moment that those ballots dropped, uh, kind of referred to as the ballot chase. Um, and as Tom Shepard, a longtime Republican consultant, described it to me, Democrats just sort of uh, at, at that point were recognized that their coalition depended a little bit more on ground game that referred to going door to door and getting people to turn out on Election Day. Um over time, that has changed, but just in the last two decades, uh, which is what I went back for because that was when data was available, um, Republican voters, you know, the percent of overall Republican voters in San Diego County who voted by mail has consistently outpaced the percent of Democrats who voted 
uh, by mail. Um, in some elections, it was as much as 7% higher. Uh, on average, it was about 3.5% more. Uh, and then the, the last uh, sort of uh, uh, strategic revelation that Republican campaigns made, um, Tom Shepard told me, was about 20 years ago when data operations got more sophisticated and they were able to not just identify who voted by mail, but when they voted by mail. And that Republican campaigns got very good at hitting up early voters early, saving their money to hit up late voters later, and sort of have multiple waves of voter outreach based on when those voters tended to return their mail ballots. Um, all of which has created a situation that I'm sure you remember, Scott, Sarah, I'm sure when you came to town, you got the, the same briefing that I did, which is you need to uh, temper your uh, your your reactions on election night because they release the first batch of results that are entirely mail b ballots that were received before election day. And we all know that those results are going to be more Republican skewing than the overall results. And that's specifically because Republican voters in San Diego have been so much more prone to using vote by mail. It, it seems like the president has made the opposite conclusion for the country. <laughs> he, he has decided that the politics of the situation make clear to him that the vote by mail would be dominated by Democrats and that the day of voting would be dominated by his supporters, and thus he must suppress the former. Now, when you press him or others on what his actual concerns are, they try to go to a rationale that goes something like this. Look, if you want to vote absentee, as you described, fine. If you're traveling, whatever, you need to request that ballot. But you shouldn't do it for everyone, that that introduces too much you know, potential, like all these ballots swimming around. But, um, you know, I, I guess I, I want you to explain what's going on with that discussion. In San Diego, am I right? We're at like 70% or so vote by mail right now, correct? That's correct. So presume, presuming you take his argument on good faith, which became a lot harder this morning after he uh, openly said that the reason <laughs> that he was depriving funding of the U.S. Postal Service was to ensure that universal vote by mail was not possible. Uh, but let's pretend that we're having this conversation <laughs> yesterday in a world in which we have to pretend that he is making this argument for reasons that don't include voter suppression. So th the argument there is something along the lines of the v results that come in through the mail uh, can't be trusted, either because of foreign actors creating counterfeit ballots or uh, people uh, digging, rifling through mailboxes to find all these stray ballots and then sending them, them back in. Uh, the, the issue is the validation process. The validation process is that the registrar matches every vote, every ballot it receives with the signature on the bottom to the signature that's on file from when you registered to vote and through unique barcodes that are on every ballot, they ensure that no ballot can be returned twice. So there are validation steps in place that prevent these horror stories from taking place. And they're the same 
validation steps that are used for actual absentee balloting that are used in vote by mail voting. And they're, in fact, the same ones that are used in in-person voting when you have to sign sign in as well. I mean, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I know at, at my neighborhood polling place, I don't know the person who's volunteered there. They don't know who I am. They use this, my signature to determine if I am who I say I am, uh, which is, in other words, the very same validation process used by mail. Um, so, and so the the distinction that they're drawing is, I would say, more a talking point that holds up on Twitter among people who don't know what they're referring to than it is uh, an actual concern for uh, voting, you know, voting uh, officials. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we have a preview of an event we hosted earlier this week about the future of schools. They're closed, but obviously a lot of private options are opening up. And that is uh, presenting opportunity, but also some problematic situations uh, about equity and other issues. We spoke to a number of experts who voiced their concerns about learning pods uh, and the opportunities and the resources that are going to be available. Stay with us. If you're a fan of this podcast, you have probably heard us talk about 101 Ash Street. We learn a lot more this week from reporters Jesse Marks and Lisa Halverstadt about how the deal originated. So just some background. Uh, the city has employees not just at City Hall, but around downtown in leases. Uh, they were looking to update those leases. They say, well, we what if we do a long-term City Hall project? The City Hall uh, project died and they go back to the drawing board. And uh, a guy who owns the building that Sempra used to be headquartered in, 101 Ash Street. Well, yeah, it's a kind of a weird. Looks like a uh, looks like a like the old Chrysler building or something. It's just it's not a good building. It's not a pretty building. It, it's it, so Sempra leaves it. The guy who owns it's a guy named Sandy Shapery, and he starts to uh, telling the city, "Hey, why don't you?" come lease this building why don't you come lease or let's sell it or we'll do some deal and you can have your employees there long term it'll be a great deal let's see if we can do it the city says according to jesse and lisa nah not interested and then shapery needs some cash apparently he goes and he gets some cash 25 million dollars from doug manchester who had just sold the union tribune he puts $25 million in, owns 49 million, 49% of the property of this building. And that presents a little bit of a political problem for the city if they ever do want to buy that building. Uh, Andy, it looks a little awkward. Huh? It does. It's actually kind of funny to me that Shapery thought that this would be an asset to his attempts to get the city in this building yeah. as opposed to it clearly being a detriment. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny that like this all took shape the way it did by the city like trying to avoid bad optics mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and their maneuver in trying to avoid those optics ended up being to bring in this third party that sowed the seeds for everything going very badly <laughs> or, or maybe another way to which look has at it created is its own optics that are very bad and underlying 
structural problems. There's probably a lesson in there about spending too much time worrying about bad optics. Uh, But (laughs) I mean, to their to their credit, you know, I think um, it's important that officials recognize the bad optics of some of these situations. But it it didn't work out well for them this time. (laughs) Typically, when there's bad optics, it's because the substance itself is bad. Right. You know, it, it's a pretty rare occurrence where you're like, God, this is a heck of a deal, an absolute peach, but it looks bad. You know, we just got to fix the, the optics here and then the, the deal itself yeah. will be great. Um, it, it, it's funny, Shapery's opinion, you know, I we get emails all the time alleging grand conspiracies and, you know, uh, cigar smoke filled rooms where all the decisions are being made. It appears one person who subscribed to that theory was Sandy Shapery. <laughs> who was who was of the beliefs that the best way to get the city into this uh, building would be to get Doug Manchester on his team? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the winner. So uh, anyway, the mayor looks at this and says, "I'm not gonna, uh, you know, six months after I get elected, I'm not gonna give Doug Manchester." $30 million. That's going to look weird. Doug Manchester, of course, had been part of that meeting uh, the year before in 2013 uh, that decided that Kevin Faulkner was going to be the Republican choice to succeed. Uh, Bob Filner, uh, the, the mayor who was collapsing at that moment, the Democrat. Speaking uh, of which, uh, you know how some radio shows have like a, a ding sound or something anytime <laughs> one of their hosts yeah. makes like we should have a ding sound every time you reference that confab. <laughs> yeah, okay. That it is a favorite of mine. Yes. Yeah. So, uh uh obviously Manchester a major uh, Republican donor. So, he's mad. Uh so in the reporting this week, Halberstadt and Jesse Marks reveal that that Manchester was mad the city didn't do a deal and he he refused to send his engineer in to help with a, an inspection of the property. Uh but there was a third party as Sarah mentioned that came in that said, "Hey, we can make this work." for you. It's called Sistera Development. And they say, like, we'll buy the building from Shapery in Manchester, and then we'll work out a lease-to-own deal with the city, uh, similar to what we did at the Civic Center Plaza Tower. That's the tower right next door uh, that has long housed the city attorney's office. The San Diego Opera used to have its offices there. I'm not sure if it does still. You know, that, that tower uh, and they said, you know, we've done that for that building. The city's now in a lease to own for that. We'll do that same thing for this. And we'll, you know, it'll be politically easier for you. They charged a bunch of fees, though. And they're the ones that set this whole thing in motion. And now the city is is dealing with uh, what could be two or three hundred million dollars to either fix this building up so that uh, people can move into it and operate or somehow tear it down, or all the options look bad. Vivian Moreno, councilwoman, said that Sistera's involvement this week, this was her word, said uh, amounted to a fraud, uh, and and they, the investigations have been demanded. They have been demanded many times. It is, it is a giant lemon, expensive one. It's the kind of scandal that I, I remember the last one that was like this, maybe in 2011 or 12, was the, the building that was too tall around the airport, uh, and they had to cut the building down, and it cut through the, 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 the news to a point where most people understood that there was a building that was too tall. I think they're kind of getting it this time. I think it's, it's crossed over to an actual scandal, but am I wrong? Yeah, I, I don't think right. anyone knows about this. <laughs> oh, that's good. So Sarah, I, I, Sarah's I, on the no camp. 
I quizzed my husband and he said, no one knows what 101 Ash Street is. You have to call it the Sempra building. People know what the Sempra building is. That's and I said, well, if I talk about either of them, do you know that there's a scandal involved? And he was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So Andy, you make the case why it has. Uh, well, so first of all, I mean, I think the awareness of any sort of city issue is penetrates to a, a relatively small number of people. But among that pool of people, I think the the saturation of this sort of story is, is actually relatively high as far as city stories go. Um, and also, I, I think the thing that I've certainly been persuaded of is that uh, while people may not know every detail, certainly people don't know every detail, um, all you need to convey is city bad <laughs> and and to the extent that this this the details do substantiate that the idea that the city did a bad thing here uh then i i think that's that's making its way through i think that i think yeah this, yeah they bought a building that they can't move people into and it's going to cost a couple hundred million dollars when they don't have that they didn't buy a building to like put a football team in they literally bought a building that nothing can happen in right now. I mean, it's starting to get simple. And, uh, you know, somebody made a bunch of money. And that's going to be the real interesting part, is if it becomes clear who made the money out of this. And and that's what we're tracking. We got a little bit closer with this story. Highly recommend you get in that. How the city ended up leasing a lemon uh, by Jesse Marks and Lisa Halverstadt on voiceofsandiego.org. Uh, there were a couple nuggets in there that were just good. There was that point about Manchester uh, and then Sisteris quoted, uh, the guy from Sisteris quoted at length, explaining their role. Um, not very clearly to me, but, um, you know, I think he's on the record there. And it was, it was, it, it's got a, a bunch of good nuggets. Well, we are continuing to hunt for documents on that deal. Uh, hopefully we can get uh, the city to cough some of those up. But we are also involved with litigation announced this week. We are suing UC San Diego, the county of San Diego, the city of Solana Beach, and the county too. I, 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 it's not actually UC San Diego we're suing. It's the regions. All of it yes. has to do with how these agencies have responded uh, to the pandemic. Uh, I'll talk about the county one, but Sarah, the, the UC San Diego, the regions one is really interesting. Can you explain why? Yeah, so a lot of these lawsuits all started with our effort kind of um, in March as the pandemic was setting in to see how government agencies had reacted when they knew that this was going to be a thing. Um, and some agencies uh, responded right away. And we discovered that some, like the North County Transit District, um, really recognized from the outset that the, this was going to be a big deal. And we're trying to, um, you know, make changes and respond and make moves to protect people. And then some haven't responded at all. Um, and UC San Diego has taken a really interesting position um, in which they are essentially arguing that their employees' emails are private, which would be news to, I think, anyone in California who's ever requested a public record. Um, and so I think that this policy goes beyond just the school and beyond just this request and is 
you know, a major contention in how the law works. And so um, if we were successful in this particular lawsuit, it wouldn't just give us the emails that we're seeking, but it would undo this policy that extends to the entire UC system. Yeah. Uh, so that's about precedent. That could be a big deal. I think uh, the other one that I'm uh, really interested in, in, in involved in, in is this question about the county. So everything that's happening right now has to do with outbreaks of the virus. Um, you know, we're still we still can't hold in-person classes uh, for schools because of the outbreaks. And in fact, the San Diego Unified came out with an even more strict uh, guideline, guidance of how few outbreaks they want to see before they'll uh, open schools. And so outbreaks, outbreaks, outbreaks are everything. Um, and the county knows a lot about these outbreaks. They've, they've done more than 35,000 investigations into uh, cases of positive COVID transmission. And, um, and then occasionally, you know, a journalist will find out about an outbreak and, and the county will confirm that. But we asked for all of the uh, investigative files from these tracing investigations, and they didn't even look for them. They said, we're not going to look for anything like that until after the COVID emergency is over, which could be 2025. Like they just said, no, we're not even looking. And um, and, you know, the second argument they always make is that we can't release that information because it'll make people uncooperative with uh, contact tracing investigations. But uh, I also think there's something here. Like we, uh, first of all, they do release information. They'll say like restaurant, bar caused an outbreak, preschool, business setting. They'll release that information, but not how many people got it, not whether they were complying with regulations, not whether it was indoor or outdoor, not how widespread it went after that, nothing about the actual circumstances or where it was. And uh, and so all of that information, if we had it, we could a help people adapt their lifestyle even more, learn lessons from these places where these outbreaks occurred. But then secondly, hold them accountable for what their actions have been, because they've not done a good job making sure that our lives can properly you know, manage this crisis. They failed this summer spectacularly in in you know, letting this get out of control again. And I think a lot of this data could help us understand in what way they failed. And I think that may be part of the reason they don't even want to look for it or or provide those documents to us. I think so often with records requests, um, that's precisely, you know, the thing is that they want to evade accountability. And there's a really big part of that here. But I think that you know, what you mentioned as far as public decision making is so important here. It's so like we're still dealing with this in real time. We're not looking back at a scandal that already played out. Um, and like everything we do, like I don't go to outdoor restaurants precisely because they won't say whether these restaurant outbreaks occurred in an indoor setting, whether it was entirely staff who were affected or whether customers, you know, caught the virus after eating there. And like, these are very real distinctions that would make an impact on what people are doing. If we knew that customers at grocery stores kept getting it, you know, maybe I would order my groceries, um, but I'm not. And so this is real tangible information that impacts like what people are doing. Yeah, if you could say definitively, 
there have been no outbreaks associated with outdoor dining that followed social distancing rules. I would go to outdoor restaurants. And right exactly. now I will not go to an outdoor restaurant. Yeah, and, and all of this could help facilitate people better adapting to this crisis, and they're not providing the info. And in fact, it's like piddling. I, it really provoked me when they would put out this list. It's just way so, it's so vague. It's like, what's the, what's the point of even releasing that list of descriptions? It's public it, information it's just, theater. It's, it's, it's the equivalent. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's eyewash, as they say in baseball. And, and it's almost like um, releasing part of it is more harmful because if I know that there's restaurants involved, then I'm not going to go to a restaurant. But if they would give us the full picture, maybe I would feel much more comfortable. Or like when you say a business setting, maybe I'm not going to go to my doctor's office to get a checkup because they've been transmitted in, you know, businesses and that could count. But, you know, the reality could be something much different that would put my mind at ease. Yeah. What if the four business settings that they released were actually one building or one government building, like that might be something the public deserves to understand. And I, they'll say like, you know, again, this point about we don't want to discourage people from cooperating. And if we release this information, they might. OK, well, maybe we can work out, you know, some reasonable restrictions on the on the privacy stuff. But, you know, if you're not going to have that conversation, then we're going to take it to court. And that's what we've done. I'm proud of the team. And I love our uh, attorney, Felix uh, Tinkov, who's leading this effort. And uh, hopefully we'll be getting some results we can report back on soon. All right, this week we hosted a town hall event to discuss the future of schools. There's, they're closed, but a lot of opportunities are opening up for people to uh, provide guidance for their kids during the day if they can afford it. It was a riveting conversation with a lot of ups and downs. Uh, I really think you would enjoy it, and it's, it was very insightful. Here is a snippet of it, and you can catch the rest on YouTube. Well, first, I want to go to Dr. Howard. Um, you know, Dr. Howard and I spoke last week for a story I was working on about uh, some of these private options. You know, we're hearing this rise in all these options that will be available, lots of them for a fee, unfortunately. and. You know, it's not a surprise that parents are coming up with new ways to get their children to socialize. Um, but Dr. Howard, what do you think the impact could be in the rise in all these fee-based school-like options? So first and foremost, thanks for having me on, Will. I think this is an important conversation. So I think there's, a, there's an elephant in the room here that needs to be discussed. And I think board member Herrera touched upon it briefly, but I wanna go a little bit deeper. I think what this 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 proliferation of learning pods uh, that most of which I understand are based on fee for participation is only going to create deeper, deeper inequities that already exist in our communities. Not only will these inequities be even widened, but I think what we also have to talk about is the racialization of these inequities. We know that in Southern California and in San Diego in particular, the majority of the students who are in San Diego schools are students of color. The disproportionate number of those students who are Latinx, African-American, and Asian Pacific Islander uh, are more likely to be poor than their counterparts. So when we talk about what the implications will be, what the ramifications are, what we're going to see is more black and brown children who we have fought for years to try to create more equitable opportunities to learn 
we will see much of that progress beginning to erode because many families may not have the means and the resources to participate in these different types of learning opportunities. Now, I want to be clear about this. By no means do I begrudge those parents who have the means and have the wherewithal to provide these opportunities for their children. That's their responsibility. That's their obligation. And they have the privilege and they have the means to do so. But what I do begrudge is a system that allows this kind of inequity to happen. What I do begrudge is a system that sees the inequities, know that they exist, but yet we still don't rally around them collectively to do something different, to say we're not going to allow some students to have opportunities, but yet others will be on the outside looking in. Because when it's all said and done, when we are beyond this COVID moment, hopefully all these students will come back to a place called school. And what will be more evident at that point in time is that the students who are able to participate in these learning pods were able to not only benefit socially, emotionally, and academically, but they will also continue to thrive, whereas other children, many of whom will be black, brown, and poor, will have fallen farther and farther behind, yet they will compete on the same tests, apply for the same colleges, compete for the same jobs. And so what you may see is years of regression that students may have experienced in terms of their academic pursuits. So I think we have to think collectively. We have to think about sort of structural inputs where our cities and our counties can be much more creative and innovative and more importantly, insistent on ensuring that the same opportunities that we know more affluent families have, that poor children have those same opportunities. Yes, uh, I could, obviously couldn't have said it better. Um, so uh, Richard Barrera, um, let me pose that to you. Um, what can the school district try to do to even out these inequities. I mean, you know, you and I have spoken many times before, if government's role is anything, is, is providing for the people most in need in, in society, right? And so how can the school district try to provide for families who don't have means and aren't gonna have access to these kind of opportunities? So again, where we have to begin is, you know, our uh, obligation to our 105,000 plus students uh, to get distance learning uh, as successful as it can be uh, in the uh, in in the circumstance that we're in, which is uh, uh, not being able to to bring students back in person. So our number one obligation, uh, and especially in a district uh, with such a high percentage of uh, students in poverty a high percentage of uh, students who are learning English, uh, students with disabilities, all of the uh, sort of characteristics of our students and families, um, we, we have to think systematically first about getting distance learning right, being very clear that the best distance learning system will still leave so many of our students behind and will still create the kind of social and emotional issues um, that, uh, you know, that are putting kids and families under stress every day and have been in the, we're going on six months uh, since our schools have been closed. So we, we have to focus on, uh, again, number one, how do we get distance learning right, given that that's the system that we're in right now. Number two, how do we start to bring students back to school uh, uh, in a way that is safe, but in a way that focuses first on the students who are most vulnerable uh, from, this, from the uh, crisis that we're in now? And then I think, you know, thinking about ways that we can 
uh, as a system provide support to our families to get organized in the way that you know uh, families with uh, with greater means you know, are doing right now. Uh, that's certainly a challenge for us, and it's, and it's a challenge that um, we have to uh, develop uh, strategies for. But again, we have to remember that um, you know a, a school system that serves 105,000 students, um, where we're already making a transition. Uh, to something that so few people in education have ever done or ever uh, understood completely, which is uh, a move to distance learning and all of the challenges that that brings with it. Um, you know, we have to keep our focus on doing that as well as we can, including a focus on how do we provide quick, rapid support uh, for families. So if a teacher identifies, look, I've got students in my class who I know, uh, number one, uh, are, are, are struggling with even a place at home uh, to participate in distance learning. Number two, I know that there are, uh, you know, serious uh, 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 emotional, social, even mental health issues starting to happen with this student. We have to have rapid ability to get to that family and provide support. So I don't, I don't want to um, kind of give the impression that our system will overnight start to focus on organizing families into pods. Uh, the degree to which this uh, crisis goes on and the degree to which uh, you know, that becomes something that is necessary for us to do, um, you know, as a system, we will have to provide a support. And as Dr. Howard said, uh, the only way that you could equitably across the school system uh, put strategies, you know, like we're hearing about uh, from, from Alex uh, and, and Betsy uh, into place is through the public school system. Um, but, but to move towards that focus, um, you know, while we're uh, focused on this enormous challenge of, of distance learning, um, again, it's something that, uh, that we need to be thinking about and we need to identify opportunities uh, uh, to work with community-based organizations and to work with partners to do. Um, but I don't want to, you know, create the impression that, uh, you know, as soon as the school year begins, we're gonna be organizing pod. Uh, because you know what we have to focus on is educating kids, and right now that system. Um, thank you, Richard. Um, so, uh, Betsy, let me turn to you. Um, you know, uh, how do you see this equity issue? Um, you know. Uh, how did you ultimately, you mentioned women in the workforce is a big motivating factor for you here. I mean, did you just see a need and know you needed to fill it and hope everyone else would just do the best they can too? So um, I'd like to share a couple of things. I think one of the things that I struggle deeply with, and I and I don't know how much people really know about the Lawrence Family Jewish Community Center, so just indulge me for just one minute to explain that the Jewish Community Center is for everyone. You don't have to be Jewish, and we have every kind of human being that walks through the doors, 
oh, well, it used to be a lot more. <laughs> now it's very controlled because of COVID regulations, but walks through a door and we've been serving the entire community for 75 years. To that end, I knew that we were gonna have to charge a fee because it was a brand new program and we were gonna have to hire staff and support our staffing model to be able to do that. But in addition to building out the program, we also focused our attention on speaking to the exact things that Dr. Howard and Richard have alluded to, which is to making sure to the best of our ability that no one would be turned away for their inability to pay. We have challenges in the fact that locationally where we are, we're not serving the people that Richard and Tyrone are talking about, and we understand that. But what we've done is raise literally hundreds of thousands of dollars within our community to say that if you cannot pay the fee, you should still come and we will help you to be able to do that. The JCC functions as a nonprofit and therefore we have the ability to be able to reach out to the core donor base that supports us philanthropically throughout the year to make sure that the children that we need to serve to the best of the ability that can get here, we can. In addition to that, I'd like to say to Richard specifically, I think you've alluded to this now on a couple of occasions, and I think it's so true in this particular moment that we have an opportunity for a public and private partnership that would be unprecedented under the circumstances. The JCC has been functioning in an open educational space. We have an early childhood center as well as our camp program that we've been functioning for the last three months. And we have a lot now of really practical beyond just the strategic theoretical places, but actual tactical and thoughtful information about how we were able to do that. Now, whether that will totally translate from our small group of 300 into hundreds of thousands of people, I get it's not directly transferable, but certainly there's some level of thought leadership and best practice where we can work together. I've spent a lot of time talking to colleagues both in the YMCA system and the boys and girls system to think about collectively if each of the community organizations that position themselves throughout the community could serve for that additional support to move a school system that serves 105,000 people is like turning a tanker. Turning the JCC is turning a tugboat. Turning the YMCA system is a little bit bigger of a ship but probably totally able to happen is I've had many conversations with my dear friend, who's the CEO of the YMCA system, that there's so many ways for us to be able to fulfill the needs and we need governmental support and allowing us to be able to do that. And there's a total willingness on the part of the organizations that I mentioned and probably well beyond organizations like Alex's as well, that could offer opportunity in a way. And I know that there are groups of really um, philanthropic and thoughtful people throughout this community that would love nothing more than to make sure that the children were, that were in need of this the most would get it. Um, so Alex, let me go to you next. Uh, we, we haven't heard from you in a bit. Um, you know, does that bring up anything you wanna talk about? I know Tutors and Friends has tried to think about equity in its approach too, but but um, yeah, just uh, your thoughts. Absolutely. So private tutoring has historically been uh, on the more expensive side as far as uh, getting students the help they need. And uh, to go back to something I mentioned earlier, I didn't mean that K through two is not difficult material, but it, that it's just not been requested for tutoring as much as some more complex high school subjects. Um, like calculus or, or AP physics or those types of things. Um, 
our tutors love seeing students learn. And it's an unfortunate reality that uh, we have to charge for our services. And unfortunately, not every student is going to be able to partake in them. That being said, we do offer free homework help Friday, where any student is welcome to uh, come on to our Zoom call and request help with their homework for up to 20 minutes at a time. We also make free instructional videos that we post to our YouTube page, YouTube page, which is the uh, Tutors and Friends YouTube page. Um, and we, we are looking to, in the future, to provide some sort of scholarship program where we can offer uh, assistance to students who can't afford the group style learning. And uh, we're willing to take any suggestions from the audience uh, or anybody for that matter that might know how we might be able to implement some uh, additional help for students who can't afford the tutoring. Um, so uh, I wanna go to Dr. Howard next. Um, we're hearing about all these ways that the community is like jumping in and, and trying to make these things happen. You know, when this pandemic started, did you think that, that this is the kind of situation we would ultimately end up in with schools in such a, such a kind of dire, um, scary place? You know, I don't know that anyone really understood what we would end up with because of this pandemic. But one of the things that I think we're very clear about is the fact that when these kinds of issues occur, oftentimes the most vulnerable become even more vulnerable. And I think schools oftentimes sort of see where that is up close and personal. So I applaud the, the kinds of efforts that both Alex and Betsy talked about in terms of where private uh, sort of uh, entities have sort of stepped up and provided supports and services. But this is something I think requires a much more robust uh, 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 enterprise between public, private, state, local, county, I, I want to stress the fact that if we don't do something more urgently in this moment, uh, not just for San Diego, but for the, the, the other large counties across the state of California, that there are a generation of young people who we may never, ever help catch up in this moment. I say that because what we know is the following, that learning loss over the course of a summer oftentimes sets students back so far behind that they never catch up. This has been essentially six months of learning loss for some students. And then to the board member's point about the fact that while we are trying to do our best and that we should be applauding those efforts to help make remote learning work, what we have witnessed over the course of this pandemic is the number of families who are now experiencing homelessness has increased steadily. Uh, the number of families who have suffered evictions has increased steadily despite there being a moratorium on that in certain parts of the state. So we're gonna have a generation of young people who are not going to be able to compete academically. We know that for young people who do not graduate with at least a high school diploma, the likelihood that they end up incarcerated at some point in time increases dramatically. That means that we, the state, the taxpayers of California will subsidize that because we are not acting boldly in this moment. We also know that in a city like San Diego, where we have to have these hard conversations about something like homelessness, we know that African-Americans make up about 6% of San Diego's population, but about a third of the homeless population is African-American. It pains me to walk downtown San Diego and just to see the clear racialization of homelessness that's disproportionately black. If we don't respond in this moment today in a more thoughtful, creative, bold, and unapologetic manner for our most vulnerable populations, we'll walk down the streets in San Diego five, 10 years from now, and we'll see the collateral damage of what we didn't do today happening to our communities in the near future. 
And I maintain that we're going to pay one way or the other. We can pay through incarceration, we can pay through extensive social services, or we can put money on the front end to find ways now to help those families where we know children are experiencing homelessness. We know the disproportionate number who are in foster care. Many of these children that we're talking about have parents and caregivers who are essential workers. So they don't have the time to sit down with them and help them do homework. They don't have the time to sit with them and help them get tutoring. They are out providing the essential services that we oftentimes are relying upon. So I need to have us all continue to think about the collective ways that we can think about structural inequity and sort of the systematized racism that still plays itself out that's continuing to affect large numbers of our students. So that's an uncomfortable conversation. That's an uneasy conversation. But we live in one of the most diverse states in the entire nation. If we can't tackle this issue, shame on us, because it only has and not only has implications for San Diego. Let us be clear for a moment. This is not just a San Diego issue. We have to understand this. California is the fifth largest economy in the world, in the world. And San Diego is the second largest economy in the state of California. So when this affects San Diego, not only does the state of California feel the effects of this, but the entire nation feels the effects of this. And dare I say, the entire global community feels the effects of this, because as California goes, so goes the nation and so goes the world. Well, um, Dr. Howard put an amazing point on just how dire the circumstances are for some students here. And I think all of us involved in the education field understand that. That was Will Huntsbury leading the discussion about equity in schools during the pandemic. There was more to it, a uh, few about 40 more minutes to check out. To get that, go to bosd.org slash school YouTube. That's school YouTube vsd.org slash school YouTube. And make sure you tune into our live stream video series, Voice of San Diego at Home on Friday. I'll be talking to Sarah Jacobs. She's running, of course, for the 53rd District in Congress. We've talked a few times with Georgette Gomez, this council president who's running against her. I'll need to have her on again specifically to talk about the congressional race. But first, we'll have uh, Sarah Jacobs come in. If you have any questions, let me know at scott at voiceofsandiego.org. That's scott at voiceofsandiego.org. Send me your questions for Sarah Jacobs. We'll go live at 5 p.m. Friday. You can watch all of our episodes from that series at vosd.org slash at home. That's voiceofsandiego.org slash at home. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in my daughter's little bunk bed today. Every Saturday, Andy and I put together a newsletter called The Politics Report. We cover a lot of what you hear here and a lot more. Get that at vosd.org slash politics. And Sarah's weekly newsletter is what we learned this week, a recap of the week that comes out every Sunday, has a little bit of an insight from her or two, and you can subscribe to that at vosd.org slash this week. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief, Andrew Keats' Assistant Editor, Sarah Libby's Managing Editor, and this show is produced by Nate John. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.